0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. We're sponsored this week by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. You got to hear this guy, Jimmy Williams. He's the host of Decode DC, and he's worked for Republicans, for Democrats. He's even been a lobbyist. And he's taking all that experience and explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is smart, often surprising, and challenges the conventional wisdom. Now, you know I'm a politics junkie, and I'm a big evangelist for podcasts. This one is one that I've been listening to for a while now, even before they became a sponsor. And one recent episode that I really enjoyed was all about moving day at the White House and what it's really like told by someone who actually survived to tell about it. Did you know that when the presidency changes hands just like it did a week ago— The White House only has five hours between the time the outgoing president leaves for the inauguration and the new president returns from the inaugural parade to get the old president and his entire family and their stuff moved out and the new one completely moved in. Fascinating stuff. There's even an ongoing series on how politics affects the food you eat, from salt to sugar and everything in between. So check it out. I'm a fan and I think you'll really love this one. That's Decode DC, as in District of Columbia, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy this podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick Ass News. A hyperpartisan political divide, the rise of a nationalist demagogue, America embroiled in far off wars, a ballooning national debt, Foreign Influences Undermining American Democracy Sounds like this morning's front page headlines, but those were exactly the forces that our first president, George Washington, warned against in a thoughtful, prophetic letter to his fellow citizens over 220 years ago. Once a sacred and celebrated document, more widely reprinted than the Declaration of Independence, Washington's farewell address is now almost forgotten but its message remains strikingly relevant. Now John Avalon, editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast, is renewing interest in the address and the alarmingly relevant warnings contained within in his new book, Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. John Avalon is the editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast, as well as a CNN political analyst. In addition to his latest book, Washington's Farewell, he's the author of Independent Nation, How Centrists Can Change American Politics, as well as Wingnuts. How the Lunatic Fringe is Hijacking America, and editor of the anthology Deadly Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columns. Previously, he was a columnist and associate editor for the New York Sun and chief speechwriter for New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He's appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, CNN, Real Time with Bill Maher, PBS and C-SPAN, and in 2012, he won the National Society of Newspaper Columnists Award for Best Online Column. On today's podcast, John will talk about journalism in the age of alternative facts and the stark contrasts between our first president and our newest president. He'll discuss the origins of George Washington's farewell address and why he describes it as the most famous speech you've never read. He'll reveal some of the other founding fathers who worked as ghost writers on the address, why Washington's most famous speech wasn't a speech at all, and some common misunderstandings about Washington's farewell address, including all that talk about foreign entanglements. He'll discuss how Washington's farewell address influenced Eisenhower's famous farewell address, how it was misappropriated to justify isolationist and nationalist policies in the 20th century, and was even misused as a rallying cry for one pro-Nazi organization at the start of World War II. Plus, the dire warnings that today's president and Congress ignore at their peril. Coming up with editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, John Avalon in just a moment. Today, I'm talking with John Avalon. He's a CNN political analyst and editor of The Daily Beast. He has a new book out called Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. John, thanks for dropping by.
1: It's great to be here, man.
0: Well, first, before we even get into the book, I got to ask, what is it like being a journalist in the era of the Trump presidency and alternative facts? Do you fear retribution or getting shut out? The, <laughs> well,
1: I, I don't, you know, I think access journalism is highly overrated, so let's yeah. put that aside. Okay. I mean, the Daily Beast is, <laughs> um, you know, we do over a million readers a day. Um, we've more than doubled since I became editor-in-chief uh, four years ago, and, and our focus is on original reporting and sharp opinion at the intersection of mm-hmm. politics and pop culture. So if you like that intersection, you know, we're, we're a good spot, but we, we break a lot of news, too. Um, early on, we were uh, early principled, unapologetic critics of Donald Trump. Um, I, previous to being a journalist uh, and author, you know, I, I, I'd i uh, worked for Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York. So it's very important to me, I was his chief speechwriter during, during 9-11. Um, it's very important to me that we are true to our word to being nonpartisan, but not neutral, mm-hmm. by which I mean that we will hit both sides um, in politics as the facts require, but we won't drift into on the one hand, on the other, kind of moral relativism, which I think muddies the waters. Um, I think Trump um, represents something uh, new, different, and dangerous in Mm. politics. Uh, Mm. He ran, I think, objectively a demagogic campaign, by which I mean uh, the classic formula I use. um, I wrote a book called Wingnuts a few years ago, which sort of got into (laughs) some of this. Uh, the, the, The demagogue's classic formula in any time, any place is us against them. And that seems to be sort of reflexively... Uh, how he approaches things, and unfortunately, it seems to have continued since he reached the office. If you're a history nerd like me and you, um, you know, there's the idea, which I think is largely borne out in history, that the office changes the man more than the man changes the office. The mm-hmm. office itself ennobles. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, in the first, uh, you know, two weeks or any indication, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't too much <laughs> put too much stock in that hope. Trump's going to trump. Um, <clears throat> I think it does. Represent a real challenge because he has a well-documented. Um, um, he doesn't have a very close relationship with uh, what would objectively be called the truth. And when Kelly and Conway and other folks call, tried out alternative facts, mm-hmm. um, that's that's dangerous, right? In, in an Orwellian no. sense, and, and and the and the very clear idea advocated by Steve Bannon and others, which they're at war with the media. Um, I think what they're really at war with is the truth. And I feel mm-hmm. a certain degree of compassion for people who are working for him because there are. Good people working for him. He's made some very good cabinet picks, I think. Really? Um, yeah, Jim Madison, I think Jim yeah. Kelly are very good. Okay. Um, but, um, it, you know, to some extent, in in that hothouse environment, um, what we know from history is the character of the president matters more than anything else. Yeah. And if um, the loyalty test becomes whether you're willing to lie for me in mm. public, that's a very difficult situation to put people in who want to serve yeah. their country. Um, you know, so we were early on the Trump blacklist, uh, but uh, we consider that a badge of honor. But we were on it with people like with the Washington Post and National Review, yeah. which I think indicates <laughs> it's not a partisan thing. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be a stress test for the American system, and I think in terms of journalism. Um, what we need to commit to is being the loyal opposition. We need to mm-hmm. give credit where, when credit is due. But that's also so we have credibility when we criticize. I yeah. think the the rise of partisan media has been one of the really destructive factors that has led us where we are. Um, and, and fake news is really kind of that confirmation bias colliding with clickbait. And the fact that the administration as a tactic seems to be trying to call everything they disagree with fake news. Yeah. New York Times, for, you know, news. Uh, CNN. CNN fake news, is fake the daily news. daily yeah. You know that's an. Intentional Meanwhile, some
0: guy blogging in his basement is suddenly has enormous credibility. <laughs> well, apparently. It, well, and I, and, mean, and I
1: think I think the danger there is is that it's no longer partisan news; it's propagandistic, right? Mm-hmm. It's no longer whether you have an ideological worldview which agrees with mine. Yeah. It's um, how how much are you willing to play fealty in advance a, a, a certain uh, administration's yeah. agenda. That's very dangerous because the whole purpose of blurring the line between legitimate journalism and fake journalism, between truth and lies, is to ultimately elevate people um, who are uh, more in line with your worldview. That is um, is is a very dangerous thing that has Orwellian overtones. We should take it very very seriously. The one thing I take comfort from is that the Constitution. Um, mentions, doesn't mention political parties. It does mention journalists. And I think all of us are going to really need, especially in the entertainment world, and and I think the people who are really committed, lifelong public servants, um, we're going to need to strengthen institutions to be a a check and balance against uh, this president's worst impulses. Mm -hmm. And I think civic education, which I know you're passionate about, is a big deal. We need to emphasize that more.
0: I think what the administration doesn't seem to understand is that the press isn't against Trump. I mean, the press is for the truth, yes. <laughs> objective truth. And the only reason the two of those are even at odds is entirely Trump and his administration's own doing.
1: <laughs> uh, to, to, to a large extent, yes. You know, I mean, I, look, I've always said journalism, the media doesn't have a liberal or conservative bias as much as they have a conflict bias. Mm-hmm. And that's built into the idea of what's news is what's new. Donald Trump understood that instinctively and yeah. really exploited it and sucked up a lot of the oxygen from the campaign where people like John Kasich or Jeb Bush, who were trying to run sort of high-minded policy-driven campaigns, couldn't get arrested. Um, so, to some extent, he aimed right for the media's Achilles' heel. But make no mistake, what's being advanced is something more serious than favoring partisan news. I mm-hmm. mean, when when national review's on your blacklist, that's about something different. Yeah, uh, it's about. Uh, considering, considering dissent disloyalty, that is incredibly dangerous. And the other thing that tends to be blurred right now is what has historically been the difference between patriotism and nationalism. They are different in America because America is based on an idea and an ideal. Um, and if we blur those two, that is to our great uh, misfortune as a nation, as a beacon of freedom around the world.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a great segue into the book Thank here. You. I try to I try to provide good segues whenever I can. Um, you know, one of the things that I think I found most amusing about it is you talk about Washington's first draft, his original draft, <laughs> and he was originally not going to serve a second term. He was pretty much fed up with politics. And in his original draft, you t- it's almost Trump-like in that you talk about – him feeling sorry for himself and complaining about it. And this is his farewell address. He's like moaning about being treated unfairly by the press. <laughs> like he had some ax to grind. Oh, um, he had access to grind.
1: Yeah. Um, it, but, you know, that's one of the fun things about this book. And it's a fascinating story, right? You know, mm-hmm. you know, even if people are political nerds, what I don't think, and I count myself among them, uh, proudly so, Um I don't think people appreciate that George Washington's farewell address was the most famous speech in America for the first 100, 150 years of the Republic. It was more widely Mm -hmm. reprinted than the Declaration of Independence. And um, that just gives a sense of its centrality. It was mandatory teaching in America's public schools, particularly after the Civil War, to help reunite the nation. Um, This was civic scripture, and it has fallen out of favor. But as you say— it's lessons, it's warnings. And that's – Washington sets up the tradition of the presidential farewell warning um, because he was very explicitly trying to send a message to future generations. Um, and he did it with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Madison did the first draft. Hamilton did the second. Right. And he's kind of getting the Federalist Papers authors, the band back together. <laughs> Jan Jay makes a cameo as an editor yeah. later back in there. but. You know, this is as a result of the lessons that he learned in his presidency, his lifetime, and his understanding of history, particularly the history of democratic republics. Mm -hmm. The founding fathers were enormously obsessed with history um, because they wanted to learn from how past democratic republics had failed. And Washington said, look, in my memo to future generations, this open letter, which I'm going to publish in a newspaper, the American Daily Advertiser, September 19th, 1796. um, He says, these are the forces that have destroyed democratic republics before. Hyperpartisanship, partisanship excessive debt, and foreign wars. And when you dig into those, it, it gets even more eerie. When he's talking about hyper-partisanship, he's talking about political factions. That's the term Madison always used in Hamilton. Um, he's warning that these self-interested political factions that elevates for special interest over the national interest um, would uh, be used to divide the country and make democracy more dysfunctional. He talked about, uh, he called the people who try to divide the country uh, pretend patriots, because he knew sometimes they'd do it under the argument (laughs) that they were really the true patriots. Um, But he said, no, if if anyone tries to divide us, they're not real patriots. And he said, the danger is that the ensuing dysfunctional democracy will make citizens so frustrated with the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of government that it will open the door to a demagogue with authoritarian ambitions. That's a warning. Um, <laughs> excessive debt is something that you know. Yeah. I think illustrates how conservatives and liberals can both find things to love in this yeah. speech. But Washington and Hamilton, particularly as Treasury Secretary, Secretary knew that uh, excessive debt is a force that has always toppled mm. empires.
0: Was that his major contribution? Because you say that Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were kind of the ghostwriters of The Farewell. I'd be curious what they specifically contributed.
1: Well, Madison does the first draft at the end of Washington's first term because he does want to retire, as you say. And Mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things in looking at these drafts and and looking at him is – you know, we do ourselves a disservice when we put the Founding Fathers up on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were flawed humans, and 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 right. recognizing their frailty makes their wisdom more accessible. It makes them more great in my eyes, not less, because they don't seem so distant. Yeah. Um, but you do get raw Washington. I mean, he's a man in physical and psychic pain, and he is frustrated by the rise of partisanship, and he's frustrated being attacked in the newspapers. Um, and he is really worried to watch his surrogate sons in the cabinet— really square off against each other and try to start parties against his wishes. Remember, Washington is our first and right. only independent president. Right. Um, so, it, it, you know, you do get the sense of the man in full, and, and you do get his hurts and his anxieties and his resentments. Um, and that, I think, makes him a, a fuller figure mm-hmm. that we don't get very good often to see behind the mask of command. But Hamilton and Jefferson hated each other. The one thing they right. agreed on is that Washington <laughs> could not leave after one term. They were very afraid of civil war even. Then. yeah, And so he stayed on. And by the time the second draft came around, Jefferson and Madison had already been exposed as trying to undermine Washington's administration. And he and Hamilton worked on the second draft almost exclusively. It's fair to say that most of the words are Hamilton's. The ideas are all Washington's. And he had the final edit and he did it very precisely. He was very mindful of the edits he made. And he's a much better writer and thinker I think a wiser man than we often uh, regard him today.
0: Yeah. And you talk about his obsession with personal character um, and and building his personal character over the course of his lifetime. Uh, You say that the farewell in some ways, a similar rumination on what the character of the nation should be like, um, What I found interesting is a while back I had read a little book that he had written of etiquette. Oh, The Rules of Civility. Yeah, when he was very young, all about personal decorum and how a gentleman should be. And in reading that and in reading The Farewell, it's funny because they kind of strike somewhat similar chords.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, Washington understood what we were talking about at the start of this conversation, that character matters above all. And he was very consciously trying to create the character of a nation while also creating his own character. He was mindful of the fact that his most precious asset was his reputation. Mm-hmm. And he really believed in cultivating character, his own in the nation's. Keep in mind, the word he uses most in, in the farewell address is citizen. And he, the idea of American citizenship was new there was no national character part of washington's yeah. effort was to unite these disparate colonies that really thought of themselves as states first and he was he kept saying consistently what unites us is more important than divides us. We are all Americans first. And um, without the, the, uh, the, what later became America first, which is another story <laughs> in the book that we can discuss. But he was very focused and he was very worried about the rise of regional political parties for that mm-hmm. very reason. He really wanted to create a national character and he knew he needed to do so through the strength of his own example. It's an enormous burden on one man, but he yeah. wore it. And it reminds us too, is sometimes we devalue character. You know, you're, you're a Hollywood guy in addition to being politics nerd. And one of my favorite quotes is from the movie pulp fiction uh-huh. um where uh the character winston wolf remember him oh wait which one's that wolf he's, he's, so he's the fixer who comes in at the end oh, yeah 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 right yeah <clears throat> he's got a great line um just because you are a character doesn't mean you have character <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's uh, worth us remembering that, I, today. Yeah, too. that
0: could definitely apply to someone I know. Maybe, yeah. um, <laughs> but, oh, yeah, but yeah,
1: Washington. Yeah. You know, the book begins with a, with a line from Jefferson um, that I think can't be reflected on too much. Um, he said, "The virtue and moderation of a single man probably stopped this revolution from mm-hmm. being subverted as, as most others have by the, uh, of, the liber- of the liberty it was intended to establish." which is to say that Oliver Cromwell and after uh, Washington's death Napoleon that that was the right. life cycle of revolutions right that the 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 military leader became a republican head of government and then seized power and created a new form of despotism right and Washington was so mindful that America needed to walk a middle line between monarchy and the mob and that was his great contribution and it was rooted in his own character virtue and moderation Something else we've forgotten in politics is that he, like many of the founding fathers, considered moderation a source of great strength in a democracy, political strength, because it was rooted in classical wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's something he tried to live by and exemplify as well.
0: Yeah, that was interesting when you talk about how he was just as much worried about out-and-out anarchy like we saw in France as he was about demagogues or another monarch in America.
1: Very explicitly. And to Jefferson's great discredit, he backed, kept on romanticizing the French Revolution right. long after it was revealed to be a new form of tyranny. Heads were being lopped off at a rate of minute, you know, one yeah. a minute in the streets of Paris. And he still sort of, you know, he sent this horrible letter back saying, you know, that, oh, well, you know, I, I, it takes a few eggs to break an omelet. You know, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet saying, you know, it's terrible. All these people got murdered, but it's in the greater cause of liberty. And Washington was appropriately horrified at the human cost and realized we needed to walk a middle path. And because, of course, the interplay between anarchy and tyranny was clear to him as it had been throughout history. Anarchy leads to tyranny. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, and the extremes tend to feed off one another. And Washington was trying to calm passions and keep us focused on developing a character as an independent nation. He wanted to make sure we grew in military and economic strength so we could remain independent as a nation on the world stage.
0: Yeah. And since you brought up the French revolution, he mentions foreign influence and foreign wars specifically. Um, certainly, we can see examples of foreign influence right now in the last election. What countries and what kind of influence or conflicts was Washington specifically worried about then in that particular time
1: well because because I think your 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 listeners will appreciate this let 's go a little bit deeper in this um, What he's specifically reflecting on is his frustration over France. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really appreciate the political divides in our country without understanding that the debate over the French Revolution among the founding fathers was foundational. Washington issued a proclamation of neutrality. Remember I said he wanted to walk a middle ground between the monarchy and the mob. He did not want to throw his lot in with England or France because he realized if America was simply a proxy for these larger powers that right. we'd get gobbled up. And already yeah. people assumed we would fail. Every democratic republic had failed. Nobody thought a democratic republic could win Succeed on a, our scale. That's the other thing. People mm-hmm. thought maybe a couple of Swiss cantons can pull it off, but not <laughs> us. If you go back to ancient, uh, the history of ancient Greece, and Madison and Hamilton were very mindful of this, there were a number of cases where ancient Greek city states were able to unite against a common enemy. But then, in the particular case of King Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, he would try to start winning over politicians in these city states, he'd start offering foreign aid. Bribes, And huh. he would start dividing popular opinion. And then when the country was sufficiently divided, he would come in and take it over. And even as Washington was president, Poland had the first written constitution in Europe. And it, um, Russia bowed off a bunch of members of the Polish parliament and agree, got them to agree to a series of partitions to the point where Poland became a skeletal state and was easily taken over. Washington knew that we had to avoid falling into the trap. And yet he was particularly irritated that France dispatched an agent, an ambassador, to come in and try to foment rebellion and revolution against his government because he insisted on being neutral. There were riots in the streets. There were broadsides about Washington being marched up to the guillotine. They were right. being funded in part and supported by partisan newspapers backed by Jefferson and Madison. And he was infuriated at this. And so that's what was in his mind when he wrote this warning. So when he writes, we need to be mindful of the dangers of foreign powers trying to interfere in our domestic politics and influence popular opinion because their aim will be to subvert our sovereignty, Vladimir Putin didn't make up that playbook, people. It's old. (laughs) It's as old as the hills. And Washington was warning about it. And when I was writing the book, I, I, I couldn't have known how relevant that would be. It seemed distant. Yeah. (laughs) The foreign wars point seemed more relevant, and yet here we are.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back for more with John Avlon, editor of The Daily Beast, when we come back in just a moment. So, folks, my mom has recently turned me on to Blue Apron. It's just her and dad now, and she wanted to still be able to cook a nice meal without cooking for four people and having a bunch of leftover food and spending hours in the kitchen. Blue Apron helps her make fresh, delicious meals without all the hassle. She even swore that I could cook a great meal with Blue Apron, and you know what? She was right. Blue Apron sends complete, easy-to-prepare meals with fresh ingredients perfectly proportioned with the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, so there's no waste. Some of the meals I'm trying this month are spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake, pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach, and mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. They deliver to 99% of the continental U.S., they're socially responsible, their seafood is sustainably sourced, their beef is raised humanely, chickens are free-range, and pork is raised naturally. They even use regenerative farming practices for all their produce, which makes you feel even better about using Blue Apron. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash kick. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash kick. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, folks... You know how it is when you're constantly on the go and life gets pretty chaotic. You're working late, got to go to the gym, got to pick up dry cleaning, pick up the kids. It never ends. And I don't know about you, but I just don't have the time to be running back and forth to the grocery store. That's why I'm a big fan of Home Chef. Home Chef offers delicious, easy-to-prepare meals delivered straight to my door. There's no headaches or hassles. Home Chef is for busy professionals like you and I that love a tasty meal, but don't have time to plan and prep. With Home Chef, I get to cook like a five-star chef whenever I want, and anyone will tell you I am no five-star chef. But their mouth-watering meals and pre-portioned ingredients are so easy to prepare, it only takes me 30 minutes. And that gives me more time to relax after surviving another crazy busy day. In fact, literally just last night, we made Home Chef's steelhead trout niçoise with warm potato and spinach salad. The fish and vegetables were incredibly fresh, it looked nice on the plate, and believe me, it tasted terrific. And the best part, it really only took 30 minutes. With 13 dinner options and new breakfasts that rotate each week, Home Chef has something to delight everyone. Home Chef's weekly meal delivery system fits my crazy schedule and that's why I keep coming back. Craft a delicious meal that you are guaranteed to go wild for. And if you go to homechef.com/kickass right now, you'll get $30 in free meals. That's homechef.com/kickass for $30 in free meals. Do yourself a favor, make your life easier and more delicious at homechef.com. Slash kick ass. And now, back to the show. One could easily mistake Washington's approach to foreign policy and foreign wars as isolationism. Was he against engagement with the world in general?
1: Such an important point to hammer home because if people know about Washington's farewell address today, they probably know the phrase no entangling alliances. Exactly, yeah. That phrase actually does not appear in the farewell address. <laughs> that is from Jefferson's first inaugural. And what's particularly <laughs> amusing about that is that Jefferson has been fighting this frenemy war with Washington for like two decades. And he's been really opposing him on policy. And the second he takes the oath of office and offers his inaugural address, Jefferson's a born-again Washingtonian. (laughs) He rearticulates in his first inaugural, which is a great speech, um, basically the principles that Washington lays out in the farewell, largely if not completely. Um, Washington wanted not isolation, although his speech has been willfully misinterpreted in that regard. He was arguing for a foreign policy of independence. He was saying we should not be a satellite of other nations. What he wanted was at least 20 years to grow in military and economic strength, and he wanted to stay out of European wars. You know, Will Rogers, Californian (laughs) via Oklahoma, had a great line that's relevant because we forget sometimes about the role of geography. He said, you know, America's got the two greatest friends any country ever had. You know who they are? The Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The <laughs> point is that we didn't have to be constantly pulled into these European wars. Mm-hmm. So Washington said, look, yeah. don't throw your lot in. Don't mistake other nations self-interest for our own. Let's have commercial relations with everyone. Let's be honest and a good neighbor. Let's build on strength. And then we can make decisions about based on our own sense of justice if we want to get involved. But his big thing was, you know, we need to have a foreign policy of independence and not de- be dependent on other nations. We need to be self-sufficient. Yeah,
0: you probably couldn't even envision America being a world power like we are. I I wonder if if he were alive today. I wonder if you there know, would perhaps be a corollary to so these warnings. Th- th- these are yeah. great
1: and almost impossible questions. Right. You know, people, you know, sometimes say, you know, what would Washington say today? And I'd say look at <laughs> an airplane and say, Iron Bird. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, the point being is yeah. that he, you know, obviously he we he could not have anticipated the technological advances that have shrunk mm-hmm. distance. Um, but Washington was very mindful of the fact that he and the founding brothers did not have a monopoly on wisdom. There's – you know, we're going to have a new Supreme Court nominee in a few days. Um, and uh, there's a great line that I use in the book where he's talking with Bushrod Washington, his nephew who became a Supreme Court justice, about the Constitutional Convention. And he said, look, you know, I don't believe that uh, we, the founding generation, have more wisdom than anyone who's going to come past. He was not a strict constructionist or originalist in that way. What I think the point of Washington's wisdom is and the way he intended to be used is as principles and guidelines, not rigid ideological straitjackets. Very clearly, though, he says about foreign policy, you know, that he wants us to gain gain strength. He does not want us to mistake other nations' self-interest for our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he also says, look, once we're strong, we may decide that we want to get involved in a conflict, but at least we'll be doing it based on our interests and our sense right. of justice. Yeah. And that's a crucial distinction <laughs> that I think skates to where the puck's going. The reason the farewell dress falls out of favor is over the debate about whether America should enter World War I 100 years ago. And it's fascinating because Woodrow Wilson's a Washington biographer and he squares off against Henry Cabot Lodge, a Washington biographer. And to some extent, when they're debating the League of Nations and America's involvement in World War I, they're debating about who best represents Washington's wisdom. Washington, by the way, also a big advocate of peace through strength, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that's a degree of self-sufficiency. And in one of the most surreal chapters in the book, it's a surreal in American history, and I've got some pictures of it in the book, in the royal run-up to World War II, when FDR is about to become a double Washington apostate by ditching the two-term tradition and plotting to get us in another war, and he really was planning on it. In 1939, um, there is a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden in Manhattan. The German-American Bund puts it on. They put a 30 foot banner of George Washington at the top of the garden, surrounded by swastikas. And a guy dressed wow. in SS uniform comes up and he gives the keynote speech. And it's all a riff off Washington's farewell. And he says, Look, Washington told us to be focused on religion and mindful of excessive debt, criticizing the New Deal. And he said also, Don't be involved in foreign wars. Now, this is exactly the pretend patriotism that Washington warned about. The guy's invoking Washington, but he's actually taking money from the, the Hitler and the Third Reich. And and he's not looking after American interests, although he's rat trying to wrap himself up in Washington's wisdom. And it's a really odious uh, misappropriation of the speech. And the, the the images themselves look like something out of Twilight Zone or Dark Mirror. I mean, it's really surreal. Wow. Um, and, and yet, ultimately, there was blowback. That was sort of the mm-hmm. moment where people said, you know, no, you can't call George Washington the first Nazi, and there was a, <laughs> that, which they did, and there, there was a big blowback and and pushback. But it it's sort of this fascinating the afterlife of the idea of the speech is itself fascinating because it's been yeah. so enduring.
0: Yeah, especially in the twentieth century, mm-hmm. and there's really a direct line that one can draw between his farewell address. And Eisenhower's famous farewell address
1: explicitly. And this is one of the great things. I mean, I, I like Ike. I'm, 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 you know, I'm an Ike kind of guy. Um, I couldn't
0: respects. get nominated to the Republican Party today. Reagan couldn't
1: get nominated, probably, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, Ike uh, very much identified with Washington. He was a soldier. He'd never held elected office. So if it was up to him, he would have been an independent. He thought about running for re-election as an independent. Um, and when it came time for his farewell address, um, his speechwriters, and I, I found a, a memo that hadn't been published previously, um, started talking about how the, Washington's farewell should be the basis of it. Um, particularly, he was, you know, the fiscal discipline point was something that both Washington and um, Eisenhower cared about. They both worried, incidentally, about overgrown military establishments. Mm-hmm. Um, but he Ike really imbibes the idea of the presidential warning. And of course, his warning is against the military-industrial complex, and that Certainly has shown itself to be prescient, um, but but uh, Dwight David Eisenhower was absolutely basing his farewell explicitly on Washington's farewell. And that's oh. part of why this is such a jewel. I mean, Washington yeah. is consciously trying to bridge the past, the present, and the future. And there's so much in this speech, and it's amazing that it was memorized in high schools for a hundred years, and you know, public
0: schools. Yeah, that was interesting.
1: It's though. stunning. But at different points, different people have picked up different things. LBJ talked a lot about its warning about public education, the importance of education, enlightened opinion in a self-governing people. Washington wanted to build a national university. He was the least educated founding father. He was very insecure about it, but he was a passionate autodidact, and he really understood that an educated citizenry was necessary to self-government. Ronald Reagan always quoted the farewell on religion including in his famous speech Mm -hmm. at Moscow State University. Um, And and so you see different people at different times pick up different bits of wisdom. And I think it speaks to what an enduring American jewel it is. You can see it from different angles and take something new and meaningful.
0: Um, does it do a disservice when politicians cherry pick what they want to bring up about it? The,
1: the way I organize the book is I, I tell the story of the creation. And then the second section is what I called Washington's Pillars of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a phrase he used, Pillars of Liberty. And What's interesting about the way Founding Fathers understood the word liberty, it's worth a second. Freedom and liberty are related but different. Freedom can be a state of nature. Liberty requires a degree of self-discipline. And that's what Washington was trying to tell people in a self-governing society. And so when he we cordoned off the importance of national unity, the importance of political moderation and, and fighting against factions, the importance of fiscal discipline and avoiding excessive debt, the importance of religious pluralism, which he was passionate about. Um, he was not an orthodox believer in Christianity. He refused to take communion. And, he, you know, his views on faith in some ways are very contemporary in some ways, but he was passionate about the importance of religious pluralism in providing a basis for virtue in a self-governing society, the importance of public education, the importance of foreign, uh, you know, a foreign policy of independence. These can be taken at different times. They will have different applicability in different eras. I I think the only thing that I think becomes odious is when people try to say that they are representing the founding fathers and George Washington wholesale. Mm -hmm. The point is, is that this remains a speech that liberals and conservatives can find things to identify with. And it reminds us that nobody owns, you know, no political partisan or ideology owns, you know, the American flag, the Bible, or George Washington, the founding father's legacy. But it remains a speech that can unite us. It can provide common ground and common purpose. And God knows we need that right now. Are we seeing it
0: misappropriated now into Trump's case for nationalism and isolationism? In contemporary accounts, are you seeing any references to it?
1: Well, you know, our our our, our current president um, doesn't appear to have spent a lot if any time on presidential biographies
0: yeah he didn't spend any time on his own biography
1: no no the <laughs> ghostwriter he, he literally doesn't he, it's just no he doesn't read yeah he watches tv so um there are not a lot of historical allusions he's making willy-nilly and and and, yeah. and and misappropriating i do think it's unfortunate because there are things you know washington's vision of foreign policy is probably not terribly different from what many trump supporters might imagine um although you know he gave a very protectionist isolationist inaugural address but um you know, I, I I think that so he hasn't committed the sin of misappropriating Washington yet. Um, he's he's not so likely to do so. But I think that itself raises a really important point that you and people who love politics and history really need to hammer home. We need to understand our history, particularly at times like right now when things are unsettled when there are, are, are rapidly changing norms, history provides a sense of balance and perspective, which is the thing we have least mm-hmm. of in our politics. Yeah. And I think that now is a time for first principles. Now is a time to reflect on enduring American values because they can help create a sense of a deeper keel in the debates we have right now. You know, we'll get through this. We've had difficult times in the past and, and and, and um, but but that's why we need to read history. We can get a little bit of perspective, a little bit of courage. um a little bit of wisdom. And that's explicitly what Washington was offering.
0: You open it by saying this is the story of the most famous speech you've never read. Why do you suppose that it did fall out of favor or, or mm-hmm. just kind of disappear off the landscape? What happened there?
1: I think first it's the legacy of of the First and the Second World War, where okay. Washington's speech had been mis- willfully misinterpreted by some to be an argument of of something like isolation.
0: Okay, so it goes back to that. So
1: it goes back to that, and you can really see Washington gets knocked off his pedestal. He's not inv- invulnerable, um, especially after the First World War, which was uh, from an American involvement standpoint relatively brief. Um, but also, it's six thousand words. The fact that you know, you remember Joseph Campbell, the guy who wrote The Power of Myth, which right. inspired Star Wars, right? Yeah. He, uh, in the power of myth, he talks about how as a young man he was taught to memorize and diagram the speech. That was a form of inculcating mm-hmm. civic myth. Right, six thousand words. I mean, the Gettysburg Address basically took its place. Gettysburg Address is two hundred seventy-two words. The Washington's farewell is six thousand and eighty-eight, and it is a pretty steep climb. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know, as I say in the book, it's kind of the Old Testament to the Gettysburg Addresses. New Testament.
0: Oh, interesting. That that it's a rules
1: of behavior dispatched by a distant God. Uh, Whereas the the Gettysburg Address is very explicitly sort of a poetic rumination on life after death. Mm -hmm. And so it really is the New Testament. And and it's just much more accessible in the way that Lincoln in some ways is more relatable. Mm -hmm. But Washington's is the foundational wisdom. It's the Old Testament. And we really do need to rediscover it.
0: There were so many surprises in this book. One of them was I have always had this idea in my head, this image of him giving some sobering, stirring speech with a swell of music before Congress or a big crowd of people. It was never a speech. He he actually didn't like giving speeches. It was published in a newspaper. What was the significance of this? And also, what was the significance of the specific newspaper he chose to publish his farewell address?
1: That's a fascinating story. Um, You know, it's amazing. there were 100 newspapers in America at the time. Many of them were partisan. Um, and it's a reminder that, you know, that's been with us for a while as well. Um, I mean, Jefferson and Madison hired an editor of an admin, of, to, to start an anti-administration newspaper while Jefferson was secretary of state and the editor of the paper was working as a clerk in the State Department. I mean, so the duplicity runs deep. Um, he chose the American Daily Advertiser um he's in the executive mansions in philadelphia at the time right. and um the advertiser was unique in that it was not a partisan paper because he could have gone with pro-administration partisan papers right but he interestingly enough chose not to do that he wanted to create a document that was beyond partisanship even at the time and the American daily advertiser in part probably because they had uh, uh, congressional printing contracts the print the publishers <laughs> the printers um, Tried to stay above the fray, and that's what Washington was trying to do. So he um, went back and forth and really spent September of 1796 working on this. And there's a great letter I discovered at the Archives at Mount Vernon, which was enormously helpful in in researching the book, where his step-granddaughter Nellie recounts him writing it and making edits, and it's this amazingly evocative thing. He calls in the publisher, uh, David C. Claypool, and says, look, you know, I'm giving you the scoop of the century here. I'm going to step down from power, which is the most revolutionary act. I think people don't appreciate yeah. that. That is the revolutionary act. Um, and, and the two go back and forth. The Daily Advertiser's offices are just a few blocks away from the executive mansion. And finally, Claypool brings it back, the final final, and he doesn't want to part with it. And Washington, very uncharacteristically, says, fine, you can keep it. <laughs> uh, which is crazy. And then it, the draft is thought to be lost. But the point was is that Washington was also consciously trying to draw a distinction between European kings. Mm. Monarchs would say uh, – offer addresses in front of you know, the parliament. Washington right. wanted to reach directly the American people and he addressed the speech to his friends and fellow citizens. Which was surprisingly familiar for George Washington, I think. Yes, it was. But that's the spirit in which he meant it. In fact, the speech itself was framed as a warning from a parting friend. But he wanted he knew it would be disseminated throughout the country. And it was. But keep in mind at the time, it took two months for the speech to reach, you know, the the, the, you know, the farewell to reach Kentucky. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, things traveled relatively slowly, but he wanted to do it in a little de-democratic way and reach everybody. Um, and there was an awareness immediately of, of the greatness of the document. And it was revered uh, and really guided the country, you know, in the run up to the Civil War. Washington's farewell is used as an argument against secession. The Confederates try to reappropriate it. Lincoln uses it in his stump speech in 1860. In the middle of the Civil War, he requires that it be read aloud to Union troops to remind them what they're fighting for. Wow. So Washington really did. And then, of course, it's used to reunite the nation afterwards in, in public education. Washington wanted to reach the, the yeomanry of the country, the middle class farmers. The, the, you know, he didn't want to um, be mistaken for simply replicating the routines of a, of a European king.
0: Yeah. Well, before we go, if you could sum it up, what do you think is the message in the farewell address that should be most urgently heeded right this second?
1: I think the warning against hyperpartisanship mm-hmm. as a- which no one has <laughs> he it all for no, 200 I mean, years. You know, well, I mean, you know, you've had certain um, elected leaders in times that have consciously stressed trying to counteract polarization. Mm-hmm. Polarization has gotten worse over the last few decades. You know, um, in that post-war period between Truman and Eisenhower and JFK, you know, we had a, a long stretch where divided government was not dysfunctional at all. We got great big things done from mm-hmm. the Marshall Plan to civil rights bills to, you know, welfare True. reform. Um, But I think it's creeped into the water to a point where we don't realize that this is a deviation not only from our best traditions, but it has been an existential threat to republics in the past. And the founding fathers, who are often used to excuse people's partisan uh, excesses, really were very cognizant of it, that when fellow citizens are set against each other by people with their own agendas, that they're not reflecting the national interest. Um, That that has been one of the ways that democracy has been subverted through history. And we need to be mindful of it. And the ultimate check is vigorous citizens. Washington explicitly says that, you know, parties may be inevitable, but it is the duty of a wise people to restrain them, lest instead of warming, using a fire metaphor, it might consume and burn the whole house down. Um, Everything in Washington's farewell, from the warning about excessive debt to the dangers of foreign influence to the importance of an enlightened citizenry, is remarkably relevant. But I think particularly in terms of what we've reaped what we've sowed, when we undermine the idea that democracy depends on an assumption of goodwill among fellow citizens, that's been eroded. And it's been done so in the spirit of, that's just how the game is played. Mm -hmm. It's not how the game is played. It is actually something incredibly dangerous we are treating as a game. And it is it runs the risk of of really undercutting our birthright that we have an obligation to hand off to the next generation that 's why it's so urgent that 's why it's so transcendent, and that 's why we really need to listen to it. It can provide common ground it can provide common purpose um, but that's the key takeaway that I think washington's warning that we really need to heed right now,
0: yeah. Well, let's hope that someone in the White House is listening. (laughs) Once again, the book is called Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. John Avalon, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank
1: you. It's great to be here.
0: Don't forget, when you're constantly on the go and there's no time to be running to the grocery store, let Home Chef deliver easy-to-prepare meals straight to your door. To select from tons of recipes you're guaranteed to go wild for, go to homeshefcom kickass and you'll get $30 in free meals. Go to homeshefcom kickass. Thanks again to John Avalon for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his new book, Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Follow John Avalon on Twitter at at John Avalon, that's A-V-L-O-N, or at johnavlon.com. You can also read many of John Avalon's articles and lots of other good stuff covering politics and culture at thedailybeast.com. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can like Kick-Ass News on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, And thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.